morning. How are we all doing today? Very good. It's good to be with you this morning. I am indeed privileged and honored to be able to come and speak with you for a few minutes today uh, about a man that many of us may know very little about, whose name is Gideon. I really want to thank Mark for this opportunity to come and uh, worship with you, to speak with you today, and uh, also Steve and Chris and Corey and the band for all that they've done to make this moment possible. As we come here today, I want to talk about, again, a man that we may not be as familiar with as some biblical figures, but hopefully you'll see as we talk about this figure today why he's a good representative of, I don't know, maybe us, and how we can learn a great deal about the God that we worship through this story. The text for our today's talk, this passage of Scripture, comes from the book of Judges, chapter 11, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. And it reads as follows from the New Revised Standard Version. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abbezrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon answered him, But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hands of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. He responded, But sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites, every one of them. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor with you, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he, i.e. the Lord, said, I will stay here until you return. Let us look to the Lord now. And as we pray, let us think on this passage, this introduction, Gideon's call, a portrait of a would-be servant of God. Gideon's call, a portrait of a would-be servant of God. Holy One, it's once again that we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, as we come before you now, we ask for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit fall on me that I might speak your words to your people. And may your Spirit fall on each and every one that's gathered here today, that they may receive some new insight to share with us all, to build them in their own personal faith walk, and to help us all as we seek to realize the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of our world today. Lord, at all points in time, we ask that we would always be found useful to you for 
Christ's sake. Amen. This is sort of fun to be here today. I'm just going to be honest with you. I usually have to wear a, a suit and tie and robes and all sorts of things. But Mark said I could be comfortable. So I came in today and comfortable. This is what I wear in the summertime. And I have my sandals on. You might see my sandals. <laughs> These are my Jesus sandals that I picked up when I was in Palestine recently. They even say Palestine at the bottom of it. So uh, I'm thankful to be in a place I can be comfortable today. Well, as we begin chapter 6, we find that the Israelites have again done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Because of their sin, it says that the Lord allowed them to come under the control of the Midianites, one of their classic enemies. So for seven years, the Midianites have been besieging the Israelites, taking their crops, taking their livestock, and making their lives, as the song said, a living hell. The people were struggling, the people were suffering, and this is the time when the people cried out to the Lord. And as those of you who may have walked with the Lord for a long time know, and as those of you who may not yet have walked with the Lord that long will soon find out, when you call on the Lord for help, God never fails to answer. Amen? If we look at the story of Gideon's call, we can learn a great deal about the person that God has called in Gideon and also a great deal about who our God is as well. We begin the story and we see Gideon in hiding. Now, though the various English translations like to suggest that they were just hiding the wheat, Gideon himself seems to be hiding from the Midianites. He's in hiding from a group of people who seem to be more powerful, who seem to be stronger, who seem to have all the military advantages. He's in hiding from these people, literally fleeing from before the Midianites. Verse 11 says that he was beating out wheat in the wine press. Beating out wheat in the wine press. Sounds strange? Now, 21st century American Christians may not get this, but if you were an Israelite listening to this story, you would realize that there's something weird about beating out wheat in a wine press. What do you do in a wine press? Press wine. Where do you beat out wheat? On a threshing floor. But in ancient Israelite communities, they usually had wine presses on the inside of the houses, in the inner courtyards of the houses, or in grottos or caves underneath the home. So in essence, what the text is saying is that Gideon was in hiding. He was hiding out from before these Midianites, who seemed to be bigger, more powerful. And Gideon is a man who is afraid. That's why the angel of the Lord's words to Gideon in verse 12 are so significant. His first words are, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. As we think about this, we should note that the angel of the Lord's words don't fit 
what we see. Two things we could probably assume are that, one, Gideon does not know that the Lord is with him. And two, Gideon doesn't think of himself as a mighty warrior. But this tells us something significant about God and about God's character. As the story begins, God has already challenged human expectations by presenting an alternative reality to that which appears to the human eye. In typical God-like fashion, God calls something that does not yet appear to be as though it already was. The limitations of our human vision that keep us from seeing transformed reality are being moved because God is already telling us what is possible. In part, on the surface, God calling a man and hiding a mighty warrior should seem humorous to the hearer. And if you laugh a little bit, that's okay. But in part, it demonstrates the nature of God who recognizes not only what is in us, but what can be in us. Amen? We may not demonstrate yet what the evidence of God will be, but if we trust in God, we can find that whatever God suggests can come to be in us. So what kind of man was Gideon? Was he a faithful man? Well, yes, but with at least a little bit of doubt. Gideon is the kind of guy that wants proof to back up whatever it is that God says. For example, when he's first told by the angel that God was with him, he wants to know why so many bad things like this Midianite war were happening to Israel. Surely if God was with him, things should be going right. Right? Isn't that what we think? Surely if God is with us, things will always go right. Isn't that what we think? What we say? You see, Gideon makes a common misconception that if God is in our lives, then everything will always be fine. This is a mistake I hear constantly in our world as well. I often hear it from Christian preachers who've been preaching the gospel for years, or even from fledgling Christians who are just starting out in the faith, or maybe even from people who do not know Christ yet, that Christians must think that everything will always be all right because God is in their lives. But if we look carefully at Scripture, we realize that because God is in your life, does not mean that things will always go well. Let that sink in for a second. Because God is in your life does not mean that things will always go well. But because God is in your life, it does mean that you'll never have to go through anything alone. Because God is in your life, it does mean that God will see you through and God will give you the power in your moment of crisis to make it through the most difficult times. Last week I was in Philadelphia 
where I buried a cousin of mine who took his own life in a moment of great despair. It was a difficult time for my entire family. We were all overwhelmed by his decision and overcome by the frustration that he must have felt. Unemployed, his unemployment check stopped coming, in custody, battle over his two children whom he loved so much that he gave up his entire life to care for them. Overcome by his frustration. It was certainly a difficult time for his mother, for his children, his siblings, our grandmother, literally for all of us. And I'm sure that at some point in time during that time, we all asked ourselves, where was God? Where was God when Marlon was going through his greatest moments of turmoil? Where was God when he was suffering and making this final decision? You know, the only way we made it through the last three weeks was because we did not make that miscalculation that God's presence is verified by our circumstances. We remember that God is there in the best of times, but God is also there in the worst of times. Bad things do happen to good people, even to godly people. Just look at the story of Job if you don't believe me. But God's presence is most clearly evident by the fact that when we turn to God in a moment of despair, we can always trust that God is there and that God would never leave a believing sufferer alone. Amen? Isn't this the kind of God you want? Isn't this the kind of God you want in your life? Gideon's assumption was even more troubling because he assumed that the suffering that befell the Israelites was because God was no longer with them. That God had caused them to suffer and God had caused them to suffer alone. That the victories of yesterday were only for yesterday. This is probably a concern that we have as Christians today as well. All of the great stories about God are where? In the Bible, They're already, they've already been written. There are no more miracles today, are there? God's not still as active as God was back then. Is God? But we should know that God's victories yesterday are not evidence of God's greater presence then. They're reminders that even in our darkest hours, God is still present with us. God is still in the saving business. If we are careful to recount the great events of the past, we will realize that God's greatest work comes at our greatest moments of turmoil. God's greatest rescue always comes at our greatest moments of suffering. Just think about it. If the people of Israel had not been held for 400 years in Egyptian bondage, then there'd be no reason for God to come and rescue them, would there? If the people had gotten to the Sea of Reeds and come across it in their own power and not been faced with the fact that Pharaoh was hunting them down, 
then there would have been no reason to think about the way that God had rescued them. Or even if we think about the fact of Jesus' resurrection early on Sunday morning, it would have been irrelevant had it not been for Jesus' crucifixion, his death and his burial, and all hope being lost on Friday afternoon. You see, God's greatest moments come in the midst of our greatest trials and tribulations. God rescues deliverers and brings people through difficult fires even today. This is the kind of God that we worship. This is the kind of God that we serve. A God who shows up in the worst of times. A God who shows up in the hardest times. And unlike what Gideon thought, God doesn't cause those hard times. But God is always there with us in the midst of those hard times. Amen? And God will never leave us or forsake us. And God will never abandon us, even in those worst moments. The next verse, verse 14, here the angel tells Gideon that he's going to deliver the people of Israel in his own power. Now, this point, by this point in the story, we should realize how laughable this really is, right? Gideon, the guy hiding in the wine press, is going to deliver the people by his own power. Gideon, the one who doubts God, is going to be able to do this all by himself. This is a familiar element in what we call call stories. We see call stories throughout the Bible. For example, in just about every story of a prophet, there's a story when the prophet is called to do God's will. In the story about Moses, in Exodus chapter 3, there's a moment, too, when Moses is called to do God's will. And in these call stories, inevitably there's a time when God says, Moses, I want you to do something that is completely unbelievable for you to do. Completely unbelievable. And how many of you all ever watched the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? <laughs> There's always a moment right after that moment when the prophet says, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. That moment when the prophet says, I can't do what it is that you've asked me to do. There's always that moment, and Gideon has this moment as well. If we think about those moments of, not, of lack of worthiness, these moments when we realize that we can't do it, these are probably moments that many of us have experienced here as well. I can't do it. I can't do what you've asked me to do, God. I've seen the needs of the people in the community, but I can't respond to those needs. I've seen the suffering that the people are going through, but I can't do what you've asked me to do. We've probably had those moments too, haven't we? For example, if God says, how do you respond to the young women in need here around the city of Charlotte? 
Or how do I respond to the needs of young men who are drug addicted right outside the doors of this church? Or how do I respond to the needs of the children who are outside who are uneducated and uncared for? Or how do I care for the needs of the many people who've lost their jobs and lost their homes and lost their hope to go on in life? If God says to you, how can I reach out to a fractured community divided by the fictive lines of race and ethnicity and language difference, how can I meet these needs? How can I serve? After he says this in verse 15, Gideon raises questions about his own lack of worthiness. He says some of the reasons why he can't fulfill God's calling. He says, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least in my family. I'm not the big guy. I'm not the one that people would expect to lead. I'm not the one that people would expect to have all the answers and to point us in the right direction. And if we're careful to think about it, if we look at the larger book of Judges, how many of you all have read the book of Judges? If we look at the larger book of Judges, you might have noticed something about this too. It always seems that God calls the people that God calls here to be Moshias or saviors. Uh, Moshia comes from the same root as the name Jesus. God calls the same people uh, that, uh, or calls people to be these saviors in this book that the world would think of as completely not up to the task. For example, God calls Ehud, the left-handed guy. And I don't want to insult all you left-handed people. But in the ancient Israelite world, being left-handed meant that there was something wrong with you, that you suffered from a curse. And God called the woman Deborah. Now, not to offend all the women, there's probably three-quarters of you here are women. But in a patriarchal society, a woman would have been relegated to the realm of the home, but called Deborah to lead the people. And then later on in the book of Judges, God calls Samson. Honestly, not the sharpest tool in the toolbox and says that he's supposed to be a judge and lead the people. You see, it seems that God always uses those people that the world would choose to overlook and underestimate to be the one that God wants to fulfill God's will. Amen? Just look at Jesus, if you don't believe me a poor, oppressed Jewish peasant carpenter from an insignificant village who had no home, no formal education, no money, no titles, no position, nothing to make the world think that he had anything to offer. But God chose to enter the world in this form, this unassuming personage. And through this personage, God chose to save the entire world. God often uses people who may appear to be unimportant to do the most important thing. People who may appear to be insignificant to do the most significant thing. People who may be people just like, I don't know, us? The response that God gives to Gideon in verse 17 
is the same one that God gives to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. When Gideon asks, how can I do what you've asked me to do? Who am I that I should go and do this work? What is it about me that makes you think that I can do this? You know what God says? God doesn't say anything about who he is. God doesn't say anything about his personality. God just says simply to him, I will be with you. As Christians, we should know that this is where all of our strength and all of our power comes from. And as those of you who are out here who may want to be Christians, you should realize the time is never right. I'm never going to get myself to where I need to be. But that's not important. The only thing that is important is that God is with us. God is with us. So no matter how difficult the task that may be for us to do, no matter how hard things may seem, the only thing that we have to realize is one thing, and that's what? God is with us. And if God is with us, there's nothing that we can't do. Gideon, in his time of calling, recognizes what will become uh, what will become one of the key aspects of his relationship with God. Gideon recognizes that he'll be challenged to fight battles with far too many soldiers, be challenged to go to war with an army that is underprepared, called to do things that doesn't seem possible through human eyes. But in essence, in part, this is the story of Gideon. It is to show that the battle is not his. It is the Lord's. The victory is not because of what he does. It's only because God was with him. As Christians, as those of us who are seekers, we have to realize that this is all that we need to be our source of power, our source of direction. And with this, we can do all things only because God is with us. After his encounter with God, we find out in verse 17 what else Gideon is famous for. Gideon is a man who ties his trust to evidence. Now, if you think about it, how significant must it be for God to come down to you and say, Gideon, mighty warrior of God, I've called you to deliver the people. Pretty significant, huh? God has come down and talked to him and told him in person what God wants him to do and told him that he's going to be able to do it too, right? You are going to deliver Israel. And then Gideon says, not, all right, God, I'm with you. I'm going to go and do it. God says, well, can you, uh, Gideon says, can you prove yourself to me and just do what it is I ask of you? And if you do this, then I'll, I'll, I'll trust you. It seems kind of unbelievable, but Gideon seems to test God even though he knows what God can do, even though he's seen what God has already done. And in this way, Gideon is a whole lot like us, right? Always wants a test, always wants to know that God really is who God said God was. And that God really will do what God said God will do. 
But this part of the story tells us something else that's significant about the God that we worship. This is a God who will not just do what God will do without us, but God will bend over backwards to make sure that we believe, that we trust in what God said that God will do. You see, in this story with Gideon, God came back and did what Gideon asked for. God gave him what he needed in order to believe. And God will do the same for us. God will give us all what we need to believe. God the Father is used to our Gideon nature and knows that we as humans often need to see it in order to believe it. That's just who our God is. God will do those things, always willing to go the extra mile to ensure that there's nothing that keeps us from believing, nothing that keeps us from trusting, nothing that keeps us from putting our full faith in the Lord. And in the end, the hope is that we too will be like Gideon. You see, Gideon only asks for a test at the beginning of his story with God. But after he's lived with God for a while, he doesn't need a test anymore. After he's experienced the goodness of the Lord, he doesn't need these tests of God anymore. And perhaps that will be our story as well. You see, all people sometimes need a little something extra in order to believe. If you remember the story about Jesus, even after Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, resurrected early on Sunday morning, visited Mary, visited with Peter, visited with John, walked with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, was apparently back because he visited the disciples in the upper room. The disciple, who's probably most like some of us, Thomas, said, I will not believe unless I put my hands in his, the fingers, my fingers in the place in his hands where he was pierced. Unless I stick my hand in his side, I will not believe. So you know what Jesus did? When Jesus appeared to him again, he didn't say, Thomas, oh, Thomas, you should not doubt. You should just believe. He gave him his hand, let him put his hand in his side, and said, if this is what you need, you can have it. But how great it is for those who have never seen and yet believe anyway. Those of us who are here today, those of us who have never trusted before, I ask that you might take that chance to believe, even if you have yet to see. And if you take that chance, I trust that you will soon see, like Gideon saw, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. At the end of Gideon's story, he would go on to have great victories and become the closest thing that Israel had ever had to a king. Let me ask you a question. Who was the first king of Israel? Huh? See, that's what all the books say. Saul was the first king of Israel. But if we look carefully at this story, we'll see that Gideon was actually the first king. He was the first one who was asked to malach, the Hebrew term for rule over the people. 
He was the first person who had a son that succeeded him as ruler. His son's name was Abi Melech, which is a Hebrew term that means my father is the king. The first king of Israel. And then he goes on, Abimelech goes on to declare that he is actually king of Israel. Hundreds of years before Saul ever comes to be. So you see what God has done here. God has taken an insignificant person, a guy who's hiding out in a wine-pressing area, hiding out from the Midianites, and turned him into the first ruler of Israel. And if it wasn't for Israel, there'd be no Jesus. And if it wasn't for Jesus, we would be spending time at home sleeping in bed on Sunday morning. Because of what Gideon did, God was able to use this seemingly insignificant man for great things. But that's not all that God has done. God can take the ordinary. God can take the simple. God can take the one that we least expect and do great things with him or her. For God didn't just use Gideon. God also used a poor Baptist son's, Baptist preacher's son from Atlanta and transformed him into the greatest human rights activist since Jesus. You might know him as Martin Luther King Jr. And God also took an avowed atheist who could not grasp the message of the gospel and transformed him into the greatest apologist of the 20th century. You may have read a book by him. His name is Josh McDowell. And God took an Albanian woman from Macedonia who became a naturalized Indian citizen and turned her into the greatest example of Christ's mercy for the last 200 years. You may know of her as Mother Teresa. And God took a second-class citizen preacher in an apartheid state and transformed him into the greatest symbol of Christian reconciliation in the 20th century. You might know of him as Bishop Desmond Tutu. And God also took a poor Presbyterian preacher from a church just down the road a piece here in Charlotte and transformed him into the greatest evangelist the world has seen since the Apostle Paul walked the face of the earth. You may know of him as Billy Graham. You see, this is the type of thing that God does. God uses those people who are often overlooked and underestimated and does great things with them. And God doesn't just do it with them. But if you, like Gideon, will surrender to God's call, God will also do it with you here today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, I'm finished with my prexer, my preaching slash lecture today. But since I'm a professor, I think we should have a quiz. What were the six points that I made about God's character from the story of Gideon today? All right, I'll give you a cheat sheet. Number one, God never fails to answer when believers call. Number two, 
God sees in us what can be, not just what is. Number three, God will never let us suffer alone. Amen? Number four, God is always with us, no matter what our circumstances might seem to suggest. Number five, God gives us what we need in order for us to believe. And finally, number six, God can use any of us, any of us, any of us to do God's will. Amen? Amen. Let's look to the Lord. Holy One, we come before you once again with thanksgiving in our hearts. And as we come right now as a room full of believers, a room full of people who are struggling with our faith, a room full of people who are sitting here today, we want to say that we want to be like Gideon. We want to be open to you so that you can use us. We want you to use us in spite of who we are and show us, Lord, the great things that you can do through us. We want to be able to learn to trust in you completely. And ultimately, Lord, we want to be used by you. So, Lord, right now, use us for your purposes. Take us and transform us into the person that you see that we can be. And help us at the end of the day to be in Christ, transforming this world into your kingdom and your agents of change in this world. Amen. Amen. We've now come to the point in our worship service where we can share in the worship by returning something to the Lord. The scripture says that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Literally everything that we have, all that we own, we are actually only stewards of. So this is our opportunity to give back to God's mission, back to God's service, a portion of what God has given to us. 